All right. This has been a, a couple weeks in the making here for us. We teased it. We had a couple technical difficulties <laughs> a few weeks ago, but we are back to make things right. Welcome to GPS to God. We are so glad that all of you are here. We have Zach Edson, Russell Mundy, Brandon Shanks, Daniel Sanders with you here today, and our very special guest. We have Dr. Hugh Ross with us here today. Hugh is the founder of Reasons to Believe. He is a Christian astrophysicist. If you don't know what that means, <laughs> don't worry, because we are going to get all into that. Uh, but uh, Hugh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, make sure you check out the website, gpstogod.com. You can email us, mailroom at gpstogod.com. You all know that. We're not going to waste any more time. We're going to get straight in uh, to, to things here with Hugh because there is a vast expanse of questions we can get to. <laughs> and uh, uh, Hugh, you are an astrophysicist. That has been your profession. Can you briefly tell us what that is? Well, uh, my research specialty is quasars and galaxies. And so uh, I, I try to understand the physical processes that are operating inside galaxies and quasars. My particular interests were the ones that are pouring out intense radiation, particularly those in the distant parts of the universe. But I'm interested in all subjects astronomical. Got you. And astronomical for for those of us <laughs> with uh, non doctorates over here. <laughs> anything in space is that right, or kind of generally? Right. Well, I mean, I joke with our staff that my most frequent introduction is that I'm a cosmetologist or an astrologer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we are going to get into a lot of space talk and space issues, and it's kind of um, a, a good time to do that with. Uh, current events that have been going on the last few months here, but um, starting out, can you just give us a little personal background? Where where did you grow up? Um, were you did you grow grow up in church? And just kind of a, a, a brief synopsis of who is Hugh Ross? Well, I grew up in Canada. I was you know born, raised, and educated in Canada. I got my PhD at the University of Toronto. I was not raised in a Christian home. Although for a few weeks, my parents did take us uh, to a church not far from our home, but my dad got kicked out of the church. So that was the end of that. And, uh, <laughs> that sounds like another story. I feel like that's a story right there. <laughs> story. Uh, I really didn't get to have a serious conversation with a Christian until I showed up at Caltech to do my postdoctoral research. Christians are hard to find in Canada, especially in the big cities. And, uh, you know, I was born in Montreal, raised in Vancouver, got my graduate education in Toronto. Today, I know how to find Christians in Canada, but back then I didn't. So, uh, but it was my astronomy that brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I became an avid student of astronomy from the time I was seven. I was reading four or five books on astronomy and physics every week. And when I was 16, I realized that of all the different explanations, for the origin of the universe, the model that was fitting the data was Big Bang. And if it's Big Bang, the universe has a beginning. If the universe has a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. So starting at age 17, I began a quest to find the cosmic beginner. 
didn't really know where to start. So I started with the writings of the great philosophers. I read Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason that I, led, led me to several disappointments. <laughs> and then I went into the different religions of the world. And last of all, I investigated uh, Christianity and the Bible. And after studying the Bible for two years, I realized this book really is inspired by the one that created the universe. So I wound up signing my name in the back of a Gideon Bible uh, shortly after I turned 19. Can I ask where, where you signed that Gideon Bible? Well, uh, you know, I knew my parents wouldn't be happy about what I was doing. So I was secretly reading my Gideon Bible between midnight and 2 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> night, after, night after night. And uh, in my bedroom on August 6th, at 105 in the morning, I remember signing my name in the back of that Gideon Bible. That's what I love about the Gideons. They don't let you off the hook. <laughs> Once you become convinced this is the word of God, they got a place for you to sign your name, uh, committing your life to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So I did that. Wow. That's great to hear. The Gideons uh, headquarters is right here in Nashville. There's many right. Gideons in our church and they share stories like that every year and it's just that's great to hear the power of the of god's word what it can do so astrophysicist what exactly now you you did give a, a description of of your focus but what does an astrophysicist do for someone who has no idea for in layman's terms what does an astrophysicist do well i was a radio astronomer so I did a lot of observing of radio galaxies on these giant radio antenna. I mean, I used one in Canada that was 150 feet across. I wow. used one wow. in uh, West Virginia that was 300 feet across. Uh, I've used the ones at uh, Caltech and uh, the, uh, uh, you know, just north of the Mojave Desert in the Owens Valley. So that's what I was doing, uh, using these giant radio antennae. Uh, to try to understand more about the physics of these distant uh, galaxies and quasars. James Webb Telescope has been in the, the news the last several months, releasing a lot of uh, new images, the most powerful telescope um, to be put out in space. I hope I'm not saying that incorrectly, <laughs> but um, how is that shared? How is that information shared in the scientific community? Who owns that? How can scientists around the world get that information? Can they request to, for something to be looked at? How is that used and, and shared in science? Yeah, it's a lot like the Hubble Space Telescope. Astronomers around the world apply for time on the James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, you, know, you have to compete. Uh, you get prioritized. You get a certain slot uh, to look at different objects. And the James Webb Space Telescope is already booked. Uh, for several years into the future. So it's going to be uh, diligently used and uh, already it's bringing back spectacular images. I make it a point of sharing with the public uh, some of those images on my Facebook and Twitter page and explain to them how even during the first few weeks of science research from the James Webb Space Telescope, we're learning breakthrough discoveries about the universe. And it's just amazing. And more than that, the images are gorgeous uh, we're really seeing. And I like the fact that it says the heavens declare the glory of God, the heavens declare the righteousness of God. 
while these James Webb Space Telescopes are revealing that like never before. And so I think God is compensating because in the days of Abraham, you could look up at the night sky with a naked eye and see 15,000 stars. Uh, where I live in the Los Angeles basin, on a really clear night, you can look up and maybe you see 30 stars total. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. And in places like Shanghai and New Delhi, you don't see a single star at all. You can't even see the planets. Uh, but what compensates is we've got these amazing telescopes that are revealing things that Abraham was not able to see. So the heavens are still declaring the glory of God. I think even in my lifetime, when I was a child, we live in the Nashville, Tennessee area. But I remember as a kid being able to see way more stars than you can see now. Sure. Oh, yeah. Sure. And, yeah. You know, that was that was in the 80s. That wasn't that long ago. Especially well, we, especially to Brandon. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm the oldest one here, Dr. Ross. So. <laughs> Um, but it's funny you mentioned that because we were out this not this past summer, but last summer out in Moab, Utah, visiting out there, and we, my wife and I, we just you can see thousands of stars out there because the there's no none of this living in the city stuff. It's completely clear. It was just awesome to sit out there almost every night to to see those stars and just think, wow, this is this is awesome because you we don't get to see that here in. Goodlesville, Tennessee, uh, at at all. So, um, sort of a follow up question on the the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. What do you um, what do you think that we will learn from this? You sort of mentioned a little bit about it earlier, but kind of I guess a long term thing. What what do you think we'll learn from this telescope? Well, the James Webb Space Telescope is much larger than the Hubble Space Telescope by about a factor of seven times. Moreover, it's an infrared telescope. And the farther away you look, the farther into the red, the light of stars and galaxies has shifted. And so the fact that the James Webb is an infrared telescope and the fact that it's so big means it's ideally suited to investigate the early history of the universe. Mm. And so the James Webb is going to reveal to us what the first galaxies in the universe look like, what the first stars look like and how these first stars and first galaxies develop into the galaxies and stars we see today, it's going to give us by far the most rigorous tests of the Big Bang creation model. It'll be able to tell us which of the several dozen Big Bang models uh, that are out there, which ones are best fitting the data. And though, to me, that's the success of Big Bang cosmology. The more we learn about the universe, the more constrained the range of models for Big Bang cosmology become. And James Webb is going to make a huge step in that direction. And, uh, you know, based on what I see in Job and Psalms, the more we learn about the universe, the more evidence we are going to find for the supernatural handiwork of the creator. And James Webb has already revealed that just in the first few weeks of its science production. So you, you mentioned earlier you get... Um, as a child, seven years old, I think you said, reading multiple books and things. What excited you about science and pursuing that? And what would you tell kids today of maybe to get them excited about pursuing science as a career? Well, what got me started, I was seven years of age. It was raining in Vancouver and the rain stopped and the clouds opened up and you could see stars. 
I remember turning to my parents and saying, mom, dad, are those stars hot? And I said, son, they are hot. Can you explain to me why they're hot? They said, you better go to the library. (laughs) I came home a couple of days later and explained to my parents why the stars were hot. But I also uh, picked up a book on galaxies and it's like, it just grabbed me. And it's like, I really want to understand this in depth. And just being impressed how big this universe is, two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, where every galaxy has at least 100 billion stars. And to realize that's only a quarter percent of all the stuff that exists in the universe. Why is this universe so vast? I mean, if there is a God and he wants us humans on one planet, does he really need to make the universe as big as he did? And what I discovered is that yes, he does. Make the universe the tiniest bit smaller, all you got is hydrogen and helium. Make the universe the tiniest bit bigger, and all you got are elements that are heavier than iron. In both cases, there's no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen, and no possibility for life. And so just being impressed, there's a God out there that loves us to such a great degree He didn't think creating two trillion galaxies was too expensive (laughs) to find a little home for us here to live. And I could go on and on. There's just hundreds of spectacular features of the universe that must be exactly the way they are in order for there to be even one planet within the entire universe where we could exist and thrive. I feel like that's a huge nugget I just learned. I'm going to have to listen to that again when this episode (laughs) comes out. Because I, I, that, that's pretty impressive. But it, if there's a kid out there today that happens to listen to this or watch this, what is something maybe that you would tell them that may spark their interest? And I know everyone's different, so this is a very generic question. But how would you maybe get a kid interested in science? Well, I find it's not that difficult to get kids interested in science. I just blow their mind with one or two interesting facts, and it's like they get hooked. Just like I got hooked. I think everybody gets hooked. And, uh, you know, it tells us in the Bible that God has revealed himself through nature and through scripture. And that it's fun to study the book of nature. So it's a kick. Uh, Don't leave it up to the professionals. God wants everyone to be a scientist because it's just so much fun. And I would argue the same thing's true about the Bible. Don't leave it up to your pastors. Studying the Bible is a lot of fun, and we're all to be theologians, not just the professionals. So don't miss out. It's just way too much fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can tell you, I've, encounters I've had in debating atheist scientists is that it's amazing how many of them are addicted to their scientific research. There's something captivating about discovering something that's never been discovered before and just seeing these amazing features of the universe and it can be all absorbing and i remember debating one paleontologist on a university campus and said for decades you've identified yourself as an atheist but really you're a default atheist you've never taken time away from your scientific research to focus on the most important issues of life and he said you're right i never think about death i never think about the purpose and you know, what, what is the destiny of the universe and as humans? And to me, that's the principle of the Sabbath. Take regular time from whatever you're doing to focus on the most important issues of life 
because guess what? We're all headed towards the grave. And yet there's something on us, as it says in Ecclesiastes, eternity is written on their hearts. We know there's life beyond this life we have here on earth. Shouldn't we think about it? Mm-hmm. What a great answer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, great that's, answer. yeah, that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> I had a question just about your the field that you're in. Do you find many Christians in your field of work? I do. There's, I mean, the first place I met a serious Christian is when I joined the faculty of Caltech and discovered how many really famous astrophysicists that I admired ever since I was a child uh, were committed followers of Jesus Christ. I also met a lot of atheists, uh, but I've had the pleasure of leading some of those uh, atheists to faith in Christ. Like when I think about Caltech, I, you know, I, I don't think I don't think about Christians. I, I think about the, the the liberal side of things, and um, so that, that's oh, there's interesting. There's a lot of Christians at Caltech. I remember speaking at MIT many years ago, and the radio astronomy research group came up to introduce themselves to me, and they said, <laughs> "This is the entire team. All thirteen of us, mm. all of thirteen, were evangelical Christians." Wow! Wow! Interesting. I never would have thought that. No way. It was a little different at Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I bet. I bet. So we're going to kind of take a a, a turn of subjects here a little bit. Um, Old earth creation versus young earth creation. Can you explain briefly what that is and then explain, I, I believe you fall on the old earth creation side of that argument and maybe Give us a little bit of, of why you believe that. Right. Well, I never even knew there was a young earth component to the Christian community until eight years after I became a Christian. Uh, I was coming to California where I first met people uh, who were believers who thought the Bible taught a young earth. But that never occurred to me uh, just opening up the Bible for myself. Because as I looked at the first page of the Bible, it was clear to me that this word day in Genesis 1 must have three distinct literal definitions because three are used in the text. Creation day one, it uses the word day for the daylight hours. Creation day four, it uses the word day uh, for the rotation period of the earth. And Genesis 2, 4 uses the same word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. Now it turns out there's four literal definitions. But there's three you can discern without opening up any kind of a Hebrew lexicon. And then I saw that each of the creation days uh, were closed off with an evening morning phrase. Evening was, morning was, day two, day three, day four. And again, I didn't know at age 17, what is this evening and morning? But I knew at a minimum it was telling me each of these creation days as a definite start time and a definite end time. I anticipated finding an evening morning phrase for the seventh day, but it's not there. You read Genesis two, there is no evening morning phrase for day seven. And it tells us explicitly, that's the day when God rests from his work of creation. Now, when I saw that at age 17, it answered for me an enigma that plagued me since I was 11 years of age. And what happened is my parents thought I was being obsessive about my studies in astronomy and physics, because that's all I was reading. And so they bought our family 
a big thick book on evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. I was the only one in the family that read it. I remember telling my parents, mom, dad, the numbers don't add up. We have all these new classes and orders and phyla showing up before humans and nothing after humans. It doesn't fit. They said, well, go talk to your science teachers. <laughs> and my science teacher says, well, go talk to those professors you know. <laughs> Nobody could give me an answer until I picked up a Bible. For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he stops creating. So that tells me why we see it before the human era, but we don't see it after the human era. God is at rest. And both Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4 explicitly state that we're still in God's seventh day. So that tells me these days of creation must be consecutive long periods of time. So I never saw any contradiction between the time scales I was seeing for creation in astrophysics and what I saw in the Bible. To me, they were completely consistent, but it was coming to California where I met Christians who thought these days were 24 hour periods and not extended finite periods of time. Mm. I'm not writing a book on this because I ran into so many Christians who think that these days are 24 hours. I said, I need to write a book on this. Mm-hmm. It's called A Matter of Days. And basically I take readers through all the creation texts in the Bible, not those, just those in Genesis, but throughout all 66 books and make the point, if you take those biblical creation texts literally and consistently, it's clear that these creation days must be long time periods. They can't be 24 hours. From my perspective, biblical inerrancy can only be defended from an old earth perspective. I've heard about, the, I think it was maybe last week where NASA was hitting the asteroid trying yes. to knock it off course. Um, yes. I just wanted to know what you just, could you give us some more information about that? Do you think there'll ever be a time where we will, um, that, you know, a big asteroid might actually threaten the earth and uh, just your thoughts on that? Well, NASA actually tracks asteroids and comets that have the possibility of striking the earth. I mean, after all, we got quite a few craters on the face (laughs) of the earth. There's one in Arizona uh, of a big rock that smacked into the desert there 50,000 years ago. So we know these things will happen. There's enough asteroids in the comets where we know these events are inevitable. Uh, But what NASA has been experimenting with, uh, is this a disaster that we could prevent? In other words, uh, we track these asteroids and comets and say, well, that one has a good possibility of striking the Earth Uh, say in 2139. Well, uh, let's prepare for that. And uh, what this recent uh, test basically showed us, you only have to give the comet or the asteroid a tiny nudge uh, to shift its orbit enough where it's not going to collide with the Earth. So yes, uh, for relatively low costs, uh, we prevent, uh, say, some asteroid or comet uh, smashing into Manhattan. (laughs) So along those same lines, how much sky can we actually track? I'm not sure if that's well worded or not, but of the space around the Earth, you know, there's comets and other um, things that we track, but how much can we see or how much do we think we can see 
Well, what NASA has done is it said, we're going to track the stuff that could cause significant damage. And they put the limit at about 100 meters. So if it's an asteroid or a comet bigger than 100 meters across, they track it. If it's smaller than that, they don't bother. Because if it does come into contact with the Earth, it's going to burn up significantly uh, before it makes a ground. And uh, so it's not going to wipe out an entire city. Um, and so that's kind of where they drew the line. But they said, you know, give us some additional funding and we could extend the search out where we're basically tracking everything 100 feet and bigger. Uh, so right now it's exhaustive above 100 meters, uh, but they're also tracking a lot that are as small as only 50 to 100 feet. Uh, but it's such that they basically told us nothing's going to hit us that could do any damage uh, in the 21st century. Uh, the closest uh, possibility would be something in the 22nd century. Mm -hmm. I don't have to worry that, about that one. <laughs> you can worry about all kinds of other things like earthquakes and solar flares, but uh, that's one we can take off the list. Yeah. Nobody will be around to see it. No, that is true. Um, how does science support the Bible and what we know of God? Well, the Bible makes significant scientific claims. I mean, what struck me right away when I first picked up a Bible as a teenager is that it takes us through this account of creation events in Genesis chapter 1, describes the events in significant detail, and puts them in a chronological sequence. And I realized at age 17, this is science that's way beyond the common knowledge of the generation of Moses. And so the fact that it got everything correctly described and the correct chronological sequence, I saw that as evidence uh, that the Bible indeed is inspired by the one that actually did all the deeds. Mm -hmm. uh, but I spent about 18 months going through the Bible saying, I wonder if there's other places. And so, for example, I found multiple places that spoke about the fact not only does the universe have a beginning, but space and time have a beginning. And so this was intriguing to me because I was aware that physicists were developing the first of the space-time theorems. And we now know the Bible got it right. There really is a beginning of space and time that coincides with the creation of the universe. Uh, the Bible in multiple places tells us the laws of physics are fixed. They don't change. And that's something we astronomers have been able to verify. As we look far away, we look back in time. Uh, but everywhere we look, we see that the laws of physics are identical to what we measure in the lab. But the Bible said it first. So mm -hmm. uh, I wound up uh, collecting, uh, before I became a Christian, uh, a couple of hundred places in the Bible where it made statements about science that were many, many centuries beyond the scientific knowledge of the contemporaries at that time and realized everything the Bible predicted about future science, it got right. It never got anything wrong. And so that was a big step in my realizing this book really is the inspired inerrant word of God. And you had, you had mentioned earlier that your parents would not have been happy with your decision. Um, are there now members of your family that you have brought to Christ? Well, both my parents uh, became Christians in their late 70s. 
I had to wait 30 years mm-hmm. for them to become Christians, but they did become Christians. And it was encouraging to me. I got a report from my nephew that when my mother was on her deathbed, she led one of her nursing friends to Christ. Wow. And, That's uh, awesome. So, mm. Yeah. And I got to see my dad do the same thing. So uh, I have a sister that's, uh, I was the first to become a Christian in my family. Uh, Then my younger sister became a Christian. My grandmother at age 86 became a Christian. I saw my cousins become Christians, my parents. I still have one sister that's not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, Uh, but she's moved from atheism to theism. So that's a good step. I agree. Can we talk about fossils a little bit? It's kind of going back to the old earth creation, young earth creation, and, uh, you know, just um, things that we can see here on, on earth. But how do fossils support biblical um, science that you've talked about or old earth creation? Um, because that's something that, you know, all of us, especially here in America, when we're growing up in school, we hear about dinosaurs and we see skeletons in the museums and all this thing. How does the fossil record of Earth tie into science and support it? Well, this is timely because I've just written a couple of articles uh, on the fossil record and how it shows evidence for creation. Uh, they just got posted at our reasons.org website. I mean, I do an article like that every week. I call it Today's New Reason to Believe. So every Monday, uh, an article goes up where I talk about a new scientific discovery. But what I was mentioning in these two articles is how uh, when we look at the Cambrian explosion and the Avalon explosion, the Avalon explosion is where we transition from a world with nothing but microbes to where you've got animals with body sizes as big as two meters across. And how that happens when the oxygen content in Earth's atmosphere jumps from less than 1% to a sudden jump up to 8%. 8%'s the minimum you need for animals of that size. But the moment the oxygen hits 8%, you immediately have these animals. Moreover, you see different phyla of Avalon animals all showing up simultaneously. And with a Cameron explosion, it's even more dramatic. Uh, we see about 50 phyla of animals uh, coming into existence. The very moment the oxygen jumps up to 10%, that's the minimum you need for animals with digestive tracts, circulatory systems, a heart and a brain and external organs. And uh, what I was able to cite is a number of uh, paleontologists who are experts in the Avalon and Cameron explosion saying, this is a problem for naturalistic evolution. Because the naturalistic evolution, you've got four mechanisms. Uh, You've got natural selection, mutations, gene exchange, and epigenetics. And there are papers saying maybe there could be a fifth mechanism, but if there is, it accounts for much less than 1% of the observed change. We really do have the four predominant mechanisms, but these mechanisms generate relatively small changes within a species, which means from a naturalistic perspective, you would predict that through these four mechanisms, if you wait long enough, you get a proliferation of species. And if you wait much longer, you might get a proliferation of genera. And the proliferation of genera will produce eventually 
new families, and then new orders, new classes. But last of all, you're going to get the phylum. A phylum refers to a basic body plan. So for example, all vertebrates are part of the chordate phylum. In fact, there's some invertebrates that are also part of the chordate phylum. So that's just a very basic body plan. Uh, but a naturalistic model predicts the proliferation of phyla will happen last. But what we see in the fossil record is the opposite. Uh, with the Cameron explosion, uh, you get the proliferation of phyla first, then classes, then orders, then families, then genera, and last of all, you get the species. It's the exact opposite of what you predict from a naturalistic perspective. And James Valentine is not alone as a paleontologist in saying this is catastrophic to a naturalistic interpretation. In these two articles, I quote uh, seven other paleontologists who make the same statement. And I don't know of any paleontologist who's an expert in the Cameron Avalon explosions that would disagree with their assessments. We're seeing the exact opposite. And also when you compare the fossil record with the predictions you get from genetics, what we call molecular clocks, if it's naturalism, you have to get consistent dates uh, between the uh, molecular clocks and the dates you get in the fossil record. Now, if it's a creation model where God is supernaturally intervening, the dates may be consistent, but they don't have to be consistent. But what we frequently see is that the molecular clocks disagree uh, with the fossil dates by as much as a quarter of a billion years. So they're discordant. So yeah, today in 2022, we now have an overwhelming case uh, that the history of life here on planet Earth cannot be interpreted from a strictly naturalistic perspective. There must be divine miraculous interventions. It also shows me that the creator is aggressive. The very moment that the chemistry and the physics permits the introduction of these species, they immediately show up. There's no time delay. And again, from a naturalistic perspective, you'd predict time delays of tens of millions of years. We don't see that. They show up immediately. The only thing I can add to that, kings play chess on fine green seats. Did y'all learn that in school? <laughs> no. Y'all didn't learn that in school? No, sir. Yeah, I learned that in like second or third grade. That's how you remember the kingdom phylum or kings oh, yes. play chess on fine Fun. green seats. Okay. Hey, the private school. We got Dr. Ross educating. <laughs> exactly. I'm educating yeah, people yeah. too. We're all doing it. Here we go. <laughs> Never heard that. No, all I right. haven't either. Well, we're going to get, uh, we're, I, I've got a, a biggie. I want to come back to space, but before we get there, are there any common misconceptions that people ask you um, about space? Well, frequently they ask me, okay, where is the center of the universe? And uh, what is there beyond the universe? And I have to explain to them, look, uh, we live in a big bang universe where all the matter and energy and even the space-time dimensionality is constrained to the three-dimensional surface of the four-dimensional expanding universe. I mean, a good analogy would be planet Earth. We humans live on the two-dimensional surface of the three-dimensional Earth. And you know, the British used to claim that London was the center of the world, but it's on the surface of the Earth. 
The truth is no city is at the center. Mm-hmm. Or you could argue that all cities are at the center. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with the universe. There is no galaxy or star that's at the center of the universe. The center of the universe is something in the past. I mean, the universe expanded from an infinitesimal volume and everything's on the space surface. The space surface gets bigger and bigger. And so there's nowhere along that surface where you're going back to the center. So, uh, and then you say, what exists beyond the space-time surface of the universe? A total lack of space and time. There's no space and time beyond the surface. There's no space and time interior to the surface. And again, I have to tell people, don't try to visualize it. That can't be done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. It's actually more complex than that. The universe is actually nine dimensions of space where three dimensions are expanding and six stopped expanding when the universe was 10 to the minus 43 seconds old. And we're talking a flat 10 space-time dimensional uh, geometry. Again, don't try to visualize it. It can't mm-hmm. be done. Russell, you got a follow-up question on that one? Well, I do have I do have <laughs> one on that, honestly. Um, you know, I would we, have lost a dollar on that bet. <laughs> <laughs> I've all when we we know that the universe is expanding continuously, correct? Yes. And I, I know that God is causing that to happen. He is the He has put that in motion. He but what would what would a scientist, what would it be uh, one of your counterparts that's not a Christian, how would they explain that the universe is expanding? What would how would they say that is that's happening? Well, the evidence that the universe has expanded from an infinitesimally small volume is utterly overwhelming today. And so I don't know of any astrophysicists who would deny that. Um, now, uh, what I've also seen in the latest books by atheist astrophysicists is that they concede we can't take deism off the table. Hmm. Uh, the space-time theorems establishes a beginning to space and time. The observations tell us the universe expanded from a cosmic creation event. And so they may refer to themselves as atheists, but they're really deists. They believe that there's a cause beyond space and time that brought the universe into existence. But typically they're adamant that this uh, God is not a personal being. So, uh, in fact, I remember speaking at one government lab and they said, we're not going to let you use the word God here. And I says, well, are you okay with me talking about the agent beyond space and time that brought everything into existence? And he said, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> Come into the back door. And yeah, where yeah. the real debate becomes, is this God that created the universe a personal being? And is this personal being actually interested in evaluating how I live my life? Because now this makes the whole issue of God uh, something uh, that challenges the autonomy of human beings. So I get a lot of resistance there. But that's one reason why I've published so many books on the fine-tuning of the universe. Because that fine-tuning evidence is ubiquitous. And if the universe is fine-tuned, and particularly like my latest book, Designed to the Core, I make the comment that now we examine the fine-tuning of the universe, we see that it's fine-tuned, not just to make possible the existence of human beings, but to make possible the redemption of billions of human beings from their sin and evil. 
This is where we see the most dramatic evidence for fine tuning. So this tells us we're not just dealing with a personal God, we're dealing with a God that's intent on redemption. And you actually see that in the Bible, that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything at all. But I'm sharing with my scientists who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. Hey, you may not believe in God like I do, but if you'll do your scientific research from a biblical redemptive perspective, it'll make you more successful in making scientific discoveries. Put it to the test and see what happens. And of course, I'm hoping they realize, wow, this is credible. Yeah. Maybe I better think about uh, this God that uh, Hugh is talking to me about in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I think I would hope so too. Um, I'm just going to come out and ask, so how old do you think the Earth is? Uh, 4.5662 billion years with an error bar of 0. 0.0001 billion. Well, I, he answered the question. And and on that same note, young Earth um, people or people who believe in a young Earth, do you know about how long they believe, how long ago the Earth was created? Well, they'll admit that their belief on the age of the Earth is biblical, not scientific. And based on their belief that the creation days in Genesis 1 are six consecutive 24-hour periods, and that there's few, if any, gaps in the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, they would say that the universe and the earth are no more than 10,000 years old. Wow. And wow. some of them will say, hey, it's a 6,000 and a few. So they, those are the ones that believe there's no gaps in the genealogies at all. Okay. That's a crazy difference. Big, yeah, Crazy. yeah, just a little bit. Well, it's only a factor of a million. Uh, <laughs> just a factor. My younger creationist friends are <laughs> engaging atheists or trying to explain how you get life here on planet Earth. If you're serious about trying to do that from a naturalistic perspective, uh, it's not adequate for the universe to be billions of years old. It's got to be quintillions of quintillions of quintillions of sextillions of years old and keep adding the zeros. So I tell my young earth friends, uh, you know, our difference is only six zeros. We both differ from the atheists by thousands of zeros. So why should we let a mere six zeros get in the way of Christian fellowship? That's true. Wow. Well, I mean, there's another context to that. In the early 20th century, there was actually a debate amongst astronomers. Is the universe quadrillions of years old or only billions of years old? And those that were promoting the quadrillions were saying, if it's only billions, we can't save Darwinian evolution. We need way more time. Mm. And so they were reacting to the billions by saying, this is going to push us into the Christian camp, and we don't want that. And so they were arguing strenuously for quadrillions of years. And what I share with my young earth friends, the end result of that debate in the early part of the 20th century the young universe astronomers won. It's only billions of years old. And yeah, that really does mean that we're confronted with the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. I, I saw an article you did wrote or an interview you did, um, and you said that space knowledge doubles every five years for us here. Do you still believe that, or, or can you oh. explain that? Yeah, I can. I'm talking about the discipline of astrophysics. 
and how the knowledge base in terms of you know published research papers and what we're learning about the universe uh, that doubles about every five or six years and it's not the only scientific discipline where we see a doubling factor that's less than a decade and you actually see that in uh, daniel 12 verse 4 uh, that in the last days knowledge will explode well in many scientific disciplines we're seeing that ex explosion of knowledge. It's one reason why, if I had the time, I could write a Today's New Reason to Believe article every hour. Because every hour, there's a scientific paper being published that's giving a stronger case for the Christian faith than we had the hour before. I mean, I think it's exciting to be alive in the 21st century. There's no other time in human history when we've been seeing this explosion of scientific evidence for the Christian faith. And that goes back to, you know, kids today being excited about science. Well, that's a great reason to be excited about it because there are discoveries happening all the time. Well, one thing I share with university audiences when I get a chance to speak there is I review for them the accumulation of fine-tuned evidence for the God of the Bible. But I show them a table of how that evidence has been accumulating every year and said, conservatively, the case for the God of the Bible gets a factor of a thousand times stronger every month. If you're a skeptic today, wait one month and see what happens. <laughs> the evidence gets a thousand times stronger. Maybe this is something you need to seriously investigate. And I think that's what can get people excited about science. I mean, this idea that uh, we can get a thousand times more evidence in just a 30-day period, that's a mind-blowing concept. When you give those speeches on college campuses, are they packed? Is it like an auditorium? Um, like I, I'm right. just trying to put that in a frame of reference of how, how many people you have the, the ability to speak to at a given time. Well, where we draw the biggest <clears throat> audiences is where we go into a university and uh, we engage atheist uh, science professors that are on the campus and say, look, we are going to give us 40 minutes to give a quick overview of our scientifically testable creation model. And then we're going to give you 10 minutes each to critique our model. Mm. And then we're going to open up for Q&A. And uh, when people see that uh, we're willing to expose our model to that kind of uh, scientific critique, the auditorium is packed. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so I mean, like we did one at the University of Texas where 3,200 people showed up. <laughs> wow. And I remember doing one in Canada uh, where we had 3,800 people show up and we charged everybody $3.50 to get in. <laughs> well, the thing about Canada is they don't show up, but if they got to pay a, a modest fee, they'll come. <laughs> Skin in the game. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's, yeah. Do you get offended at science fiction movies or novels or comic books? Well, I'm okay if they only violate the laws of physics one or two times per minute. <laughs> Five or six times per minute in a movie. Like, oh, no, they, they could have written this a lot better. <laughs> I had a hard time watching Matt Damon in The Martian because it's like I couldn't believe how many times a minute the laws of physics were being violated. <laughs> my sons kept telling me, Dad, just please be quiet. But we don't want to know why it's impossible to walk on Mars like Matt Damon's walking. 
why it's impossible to grow vegetables on Mars. <laughs> well, well, give us a quick version. Why is it impossible to walk like he did? Well, the reason that, I mean, it's like walking on the moon or Mars. The gravity is not strong enough to stabilize the human body. And so, uh, yes, you could walk on Mars, but not with the stability you walk on Earth. You'd have to walk much more slowly, more carefully. You're going to want a walking stick so you don't trip and fall. Mm. Uh, with the moon, it's even more challenging. It's one reason why they gave the Apollo astronauts a vehicle, because they knew they would have a real challenge uh, trying to walk around on the Martian surface. It's one thing if you're walking 10 feet. It's quite another matter if you're trying to walk a half mile. So uh, as far as the vegetables go, uh, the sulfur content of Martian soil is 60 times greater than it is on the Earth. And so with that much sulfur in the Martian soil, they're not growing anything. <laughs> uh, and so I told my sons, well, maybe Matt Damon could get potatoes if he grew them with 100% human poop. Uh, but any bit of Martian soil in it, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> well, we're glad you don't get offended because here comes some silly questions. This is the okay. All right, <laughs> we we know you you have to enjoy this time when, anytime you speak to somebody. But let colonizing Mars. This is kind of has a serious question and attached to it as well. Let's say one day humans were able to colonize Mars or the Moon or or another uh, uh, body off of the Earth. What kind of spiritual impact do you think that would have on the on humanity? Well, I'm not sure it can be pulled off. For example, you'd have to put the colony underground because you put it above ground, you've got a radiation issue. So uh, you'd have to send spaceships to Mars, for example, ahead of time uh, to actually build underground habitats before the humans get there. Mm. Then you got the problem of getting the humans there. You're going to have to give them artificial gravity which means you're now looking at a really big spaceship and you got to find some way to protect them from cosmic radiation and solar radiation. The moon, I think, is a different matter uh, because the moon, a trip to the moon, uh, you can be protected by Earth's magnetosphere for over half the journey. And if you're only spending a couple of days on the moon, uh, you can get back without too much damage. Uh, but the Mars, you're looking at a minimum of six months to get there. I wrote an article called Gut-Wrenching Space Travel, making the point if you don't have a powerful magnetosphere around your spaceship, uh, your intestinal tract will be destroyed within a three-month period. So it's, wow. your astronauts aren't going to be very functional. <laughs> so, uh, but if you're willing to invest the time and the money, it can be done. Uh, that wouldn't disturb my Christian faith. Uh, I'm not sure it's a wise financial investment. For the simple reason, we're now at a point in technology where we can learn way more for far less money by sending machines. There's no point sending people to the moon. There's no point sending people to Mars. If we're interested in science, we're going to get a lot more science in a lot less time for less than a tenth of a percent of the financial investment if we send machines. Mm -hmm. So leave the people here on Earth, and uh, we're not going to kill people if we keep them here on Earth. The chances of killing them if we send them to Mars are extremely high. Mm -hmm. Now, what I do think is practical, however, is to build a spaceship uh, where you could have people living semi-permanently in that spaceship. But you're going to need to make it really big. 
So something on the size of uh, uh, what was that planet destroyer in Star Trek? I forget. They called the, the it the Death, Death Star. Death Star. The Death Star. <laughs> if it's that big, yeah, you could have people living in it because when it's that big, you got enough gravity to stabilize a magnetosphere around your spaceship. And if it's that big, you can rotate. For example, people propose, why not a giant cylinder 10 miles across and uh, you know two miles in diameter where it rotates? That will give uh, sufficient gravity in the inside. And, uh, but you want it to be big enough that the gravitational pull you feel at your head is about the same you feel at your feet. The problem with a small spaceship, you mean, yeah, you could rotate it to generate artificial gravity, but now you've got uh, way more gravity at the astronaut's feet than you have at their head. And after a few months, that's going to kill them. So since we're on the discussion of space travel, will humans or human creations ever be able to travel at the speed of light or near the speed of light? We see that in movies all the time. Star Trek, Star Wars, all these things where they, you know, whether it's a warp drive or whatever it's called in the movie, they're moving at the speed of light or near that. Would that ever be possible? There actually is a serious proposal uh, to send a thousand tiny spaceships to the nearest star because the nearest star has got a planet orbiting it, which means we could be directly imaging uh, that planet if we were to do that. And uh, but it's four and a quarter light years away. So <laughs> they're proposing sending the spaceships at 10 to 20% the velocity of light. Uh, but you know the equation E equals MC squared? That's the one physics equation I think everybody knows. Well, C is the velocity of light. And so if you're traveling at 20% the velocity of light, you'll do four times the damage to your spaceship <laughs> than if you travel at 10% the velocity of light. And in interstellar space, there's protons and electrons. And if you smash into those at 10 to 20% the velocity of light, you're gonna do significant damage to your craft. Well, physicists have already figured this out. And they said, there's no way we can send big spaceships to the nearest star because a big spaceship will be completely damaged. We're gonna send tiny spaceships. So they're talking about sending spaceships that are only that big across, less than 10 centimeters across, sending a thousand of them at 10% of the velocity of light, understanding that by the time they get to the nearest star, over half of them will be completely destroyed. Uh, the remainder will be partially destroyed, but hopefully sufficiently functional that we're gonna get some good information about what's happening on that planet orbiting that star. But the bottom line, there's no way you're gonna be sending a termite uh, to any of the nearby stars. Uh, you know, termites are way too big to be able to protect uh, the, from the dangers of that spaceship. And of course, human beings are completely out of the question. So, but we could send, you know, machines. Machines uh, can function with considerable damage from protons and electrons. It's just that proteins can't. So living forms, that's out of the question. A bacterium is out of the question, but we can send machines. What would power the little uh, spacecrafts to make them go that fast? Well, I mean, you could use, uh, you know, some kind of ramjet. You could use uh, a stellar radiation or solar radiation to accelerate the spaceship. 
So getting it to move that fast is not a problem. The big problem is protecting that craft from damage. And so that's why they're saying we can't send just one. We have to send a thousand, maybe 10,000, and the hope that a few of them uh, make it there uh, sufficiently intact that they'll be able to give us some useful information. So the, another silly question that I thought of, <laughs> International Space Station in orbit now, what time is used in space? So we have time zones here across the world, and the International Space Station is, is uh, international. What time do they use? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question, but I would guess that they pick one time zone and stick with it. Would that be, uh, I had one of my coworkers ask me that today because I told him I was coming to do this tonight. What, would that be the same thing for the moon? What time is it on the moon? Well, again, you just pick a time you want and stay, go with stay it. Stay with it. That's, why, that's <laughs> yeah. what I told them. I'm saying I don't think there's really a time. On well, typically what happens when that comes up in science, uh, they choose universal time, uh, which, which is a time zone of Greenwich, England. Gotcha. London said they were the center of the universe. universe. There you go. <laughs> wormholes. Hmm. What are wormholes? We hear about those in movies. And can they really exist? Okay, a wormhole is where you've got two black holes, and at the core of each black hole is a space-time singularity. It's basically where space and time collapse down to an infinitesimal volume. And a wormhole is where you've got the singularity of one black hole perfectly touching the singularity of a second black hole, which would allow one to go from one space-time realm uh, through those two joined-together singularities and come out in a different space-time realm. Mathematically, it's all possible. Physically, it's impossible because the probability that you would get two singularities perfectly touching one another is zero. The probability they would remain stable is also zero. The probability anything physical could survive going through a wormhole is zero. I mean, to give you some idea, as you who are look like you're about six feet tall, if you were to approach uh, the event horizon of a black hole, the first thing you would notice is your body would be stretched out about three miles long. Then <laughs> shortly after that, your body would be a single string of fundamental particles stretched out. And then as you go into the event horizon, the fundamental particles get destroyed. Mm. So uh, it's not good news. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's not good news. And mathematics all works, but it is physically impossible. And this actually has application to cosmology because you've got astronomers speculating, you know, maybe our expanding universe is the aftermath of a collapsing universe where you've got a universe that collapses and it transitions to an expanding universe. And maybe there's no ultimate beginning Maybe the universe goes through an infinite number of oscillations of a collapse, expansion, collapse, and expansion. But it runs into the same problem. It's impossible to join the geometry of a collapsing universe to the geometry of an expanding universe, which means we really are stuck with only one beginning to the universe. There can't be multiple beginnings. The mathematics works, but physically it's impossible. You mentioned black holes, and not too long ago, um, a, I, may, I think maybe the first time ever, a picture 
of a black hole was released. There were uh, right. a, a collaborative effort to come up with that picture. We all hear about black holes when we're little kids growing up, and so, and and you've talked about just you know three miles long uh, being stretched out. But what is the next thing in science to um, that you want to learn from black holes, or or where is the study of black holes going? Well, we now have two images of the event horizons of black holes, and what we mean by the event horizon is when you get close enough to a black hole that the gravity doesn't let anything escape, not even light. And so these images basically show you a donut where you see this bright light just outside the event horizon and inside the event horizon, it's total blackness. And uh, that's been done for the supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy and also the one that's in M87 in the Virgo cluster, the supergiant galaxy uh, there. Uh, but astronomers are interested in getting high precision detailed maps of the event horizon, because if we can do that, it'll tell us about the physics of the universe when it was less than 10 to the minus 43 seconds old. And so that was considered a place where we're never gonna learn anything. Uh, but thanks to the event horizon telescope, I think we really are going to learn things about the extremely early part of the history of the universe. And I wound up writing an article in a peer-reviewed uh, secular journal called uh, Black Holes Evidence of God's Care, making the point that black holes typically form as a result of neutron stars merging together. Neutron stars are just a little bit less massive than a black hole. But when two neutron stars that are orbiting one another and be actually merge, they become a black hole. But that merger event generates about a quarter of the elements you see in the periodic table. And at least two of those elements are essential for human life. So you literally owe your existence to neutron stars merging together to become black holes. We wouldn't be here if that wasn't happening but it also means uh, that that must have been occurring for the early solar system when it was just forming. You don't want that happening uh, any time thereafter because it basically would destroy uh, the solar system. So you need these merging events to happen at just the right time and just the right distance uh, from the early forming uh, solar system. Uh, but we know that maybe we had an encounter with maybe two or three of those because our planet Earth is the heavy element champion of the universe. We got more of these very heavy elements than any other body we know of uh, that, that it would be a planet. To give you an example, we have 630 times as much thorium as what we see in other rocky planets, 340 times as much uranium. But if it wasn't for that superabundance of uranium and thorium, we wouldn't have a magnetic field. Uh, protecting us from deadly radiation. We wouldn't have the plate tectonics that we need uh, to be able to establish the continents uh, that we see here on the face of the earth. And I, I think you already answered this um, previously, but we would be remiss by some of our listeners if we did not ask this. <laughs> Is time travel possible? Well, in astronomy, we have the equivalent of a time machine. 
in the sense that the farther away we look, the farther back in time we see. And one of the handicaps of astronomy, we have no access to the present. Everything comes to us from the past. Even when we look at the sun, we don't see it as it is now. We see it as it was eight minutes ago, because that's how long it took the light to reach us. And the farther away we look, the farther back in time we see. And we now have telescopes so powerful, we can look all the way back to the cosmic creation event and directly witness the universe coming into existence. Say, how close can we get to the very beginning of the creation of the universe? I can show you images that show you the state of the universe when it was only 100 billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. <laughs> That's how close we can get to the cosmic creation event. But are we ever going to be able to travel back in time? No. Uh, we live in a universe with only one time dimension where time never stops and never reverses. We can slow down the passage of time, but we can't stop it and we can't change its direction. I had just a, a question about um, what your research is now and what you hope to accomplish before you call it quits um, and kind of a follow-up an additional question is, do you backtest all your research against the Bible? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, this book here, Designed to the Core, that's my 21st book. And uh, my 22nd book is already in our editorial department, <laughs> getting it ready for publication. And I'm planning to write several more books. As long as the Lord gives me the capacity to write books, I'll continue to write books. Based on the principle, the more we learn about the book of nature, the more evidence we're going to uncover for the book of scripture. And yes, when I see some amazing discovery in the book of nature, I check it with the book of scripture. Not that scripture is exhaustive. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about the physics of microwave ovens. <laughs> uh, but it does reveal significant amount of science, and particularly about the universe. So yes, uh, I'm always looking for what am I seeing in the book of nature that will corroborate what's already in the book of scripture and give us a stronger case uh, for the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible? Uh, with every one of my books, I also send it out for peer review. Uh, I get other research scientists uh, to check everything that I've written, uh, actually look at the papers I cite and make sure that the book indeed is an honest representation of what's being discovered. I just I had one. I know this is not exactly your field, but what what's your thoughts on climate change? Oh, that actually is my field. Let me. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. There you good. Go. good question. Oh, I, got, I got him up. Russell, <laughs> Russell's bringing some heavy hitters yeah, tonight. Man, he is right. That's a book I brought out two years ago, weathering climate change. <laughs> and I wrote the book because what I noticed is that other authors of books on climate change are not taking into account two key biblical principles. Principle number one, we human beings are fundamentally selfish. So it's not gonna work to try to force the nations of the world to make draconian economic sacrifices to stabilize the climate. People will cheat, so that's not gonna work. But the other biblical principle that you see in Genesis and Job is that God commanded us and said, I'm making you regents. I'm putting you in charge of the planet to manage all of its resources for your benefit 
and the benefit of all their life, which tells me God has already given us solutions ahead of time where we don't have to choose between humanity and the rest of Earth's life. There will be solutions that will be win-win. It'll be for our benefit and the benefit of all their life. So what I've done in this book is loaded up with what I call win-win solutions, ways we can stabilize the climate while we boost the world economy rather than cripple it, and particularly for the poorest people of the world, and where we make the ecological environment uh, better rather than worse. And uh, you know where uh, we actually make the health of humans and animals better uh, rather than is worse. It's win-win all the way across. And I'm not talking just one or two solutions. I've got over 40 uh, in this book. And basically what I say to the global warming alarmists, I agree with you, this is a crisis. But the only way we're going to be able to address this crisis quickly enough is to give people a strong economic motivation. And economists tell me, if you can show people how they can get a 15% return on their investment per year, you don't have to motivate them. They'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> They'll sign up right away. Yeah. And uh, the book is filled with economic incentives that are at least that good. One last space-related question. Asteroids that are comprised of a valuable earthly material, be it gold or a, a mineral that is hard to mine here or hard to... To, to get, is it feasible to think that we could ever send a machine out into space, mine that, and bring that material back to Earth? Yes, and in one sense, we already are the beneficiaries of that because there's an asteroid that hit in uh, Sudbury, Canada, and that single asteroid is responsible for more than half the nickel that's in circulation today. There's an asteroid that hit just outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. That asteroid is responsible for 80% of the gold and platinum that's in circulation today. And so it's important that we live in a planetary system where we get the occasional delivery of these valuable asteroids that are loaded with these heavy metals. It's also important that we get comets colliding with the Earth because we actually do lose a tiny amount of water to outer space, but the water we're losing is replenished by the water we're gaining from comets. Comets are 85% frozen water. Uh, however, uh, NASA has identified an asteroid in the asteroid belt that they value at $50 quadrillion, because this is an asteroid that's uh, almost pure gold, uh, platinum, uh, osmium, and several other really highly valuable heavy elements. And it's actually feasible that we could send a spacecraft out there, grab that thing, and bring it into an orbit around the moon. Uh, NASA's smart enough to realize we don't want to put it in an orbit around the Earth uh, because it's got a, uh, you know, a, a, a very uh, uh, unpredictable uh, shape in terms of predicting its orbit. And so, it's much better that we have a crash into the moon than we have a crash into the earth. <laughs> and if it's going around the moon, we can mine it and bring this stuff back to earth. So yeah, it's actually being seriously proposed. Uh, but I would caution, be careful how you do this because the last thing you want is one of these big guys crashing into the earth. Mm -hmm. That's true. Reasons to believe is uh, found. You founded that um, 
organization. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about it? What is Reasons to Believe? What do you hope to accomplish through, through that? Well, the bottom line is uh, we're about communicating the latest discoveries in the book of nature that reveal God and the reliability of the Bible. And our goal is to use the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture and to a relationship with Jesus Christ. So yes, we're a science apologetics organization, but we only do that science apologetics, uh, which proves effective in bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's apologetics uh, for uh, evangelism. And uh, you know, we have a community of over 160 uh, scholars around the world who volunteer with our staff scholars uh, to produce books, research papers, articles, videos. Uh, we have uh, an online uh, college where we offer courses, uh, but our goal is to bring people to faith in Christ and to equip Christians how to use the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture and into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to do it with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. One thing we stress is when you're talking to unbelievers, they pay way more attention to your demeanor than, you, than they do your words. And so we really need to pay attention to that last part of 1 Peter 3.15, gentleness and respect and a clear conscience. Dr. Ross, is there anything that we have not touched on that you would like to touch on? Well, that theme I mentioned earlier, that when we look at the Bible, that tells us that God began his works of redemption before he created anything at all which implies that everything he creates is for the purpose of bringing billions of human beings into a saved relationship with himself so that we can enter the new creation and enjoy fellowship with him for the rest of eternity. And that's really what I tried to document in this book that got released a month ago is that, hey, when we look at the universe comprehensively, we see everywhere ubiquitous evidence Everything has been designed with redemption in mind. God created the entire universe and all of its subcomponents so that rapidly and efficiently billions of human beings can be delivered from their sin and evil and have their capacity to express and experience love exponentially enhanced. Well, we greatly appreciate you coming on today. Make sure you go check out Design to the Core or A Matter of Days, or any of the other 20 books that are currently <laughs> out by Dr. Hugh Ross. Um, every Monday, reasons.org. Make sure you go check out a new article or video posted every Monday, reasons.org. And after you check that out, come on over and check out the new episode of GPS to God <laughs> while you're at it. But uh, Dr. Ross, thank you so much for being here today. We greatly appreciate it, you answering the serious questions and the silly questions both. Oh, it's been fun, and you're very welcome. <laughs> well, we finish every episode with a Bible verse, and, and we're going to go straight to the beginning. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no other verse that sums up this episode better than that. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Ross, again, thank you very much for taking some time out and being here with us. Yeah, again, it's been my pleasure. Well, there you go. Everything you ever wanted to know about space, <laughs> we touched on some of it maybe. But uh, go check out reasons.org. There's plenty more material and information Dr. Hugh Ross will put out, has put out, 
And uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you all again next week on GPS to God. I'm going to go all science nerd unless y'all jump in with some questions here. So <laughs> I'm ready. I Get got it. I got tons of just. They're going to keep rolling off here. <laughs> so don't hey, don't steal my notes, man. I'm not, man. I was just <laughs> seeing what you had on the back here. We hope you're enjoying GPS to God. Rate, review, and subscribe across every platform you use. Help us spread the word by telling your friends and family to watch, listen, and subscribe.